Welcome back to the Legal Weekly Wine, where we discuss the week's hottest legal topics. On the agenda today is the Alabama case dealing with death of an embryo. We are going to talk about that. We're going to list the case name later. Um, We're going to talk about the case, what it means, what the implications are, and how it is currently being handled and who is being affected. We're going to talk all about IVF, reproductive services, as well as the cryogenic freezing of the embryos. So that is one hot topic. The other hot topic we're going to um, touch on, of course, is Trump. Um, He's always in the legal news. And last week, I'm afraid we missed. So what we're going to touch on this week that is still ongoing is the $350 million case um, or judgment against Trump in the New York fraud case, the civil case. Um, So we're going to touch on that judgment, what it means, what the money figures are, why they're there, the possible appeal and how that will work, as well as a couple of other things along the way. Um, Kenneth Chesbro, um, what hot water he is in. We have already talked about Fonnie Willis, so if you want to catch that right now, we're kind of in limbo. Um, check out our prior episode on her. And then, of course, Dr. Vile is going to mention a book or two, one of which he wrote and is now published again. So if you want to hear all of these things, stay tuned with us. I'm Virginia Tarani. I'm with Tarani Law LLC because you never need a lawyer tell you do. Um, I am joined by uh, my colleague, Chelsea Rogers, who is also an attorney with Tarani Law. Welcome and good to see you back. Glad to be here. Can't wait to jump in today. Yeah, I think this is going to be a really exciting episode. And Dr. Vile, um, we're always, this is <laughs> Dr. Vile of the Honors College of Middle Tennessee State University. He's the dean there. And um I don't know if this is a new dean, if it's the new wardrobe for the deans. We're used to weird things. We we miss President's Day, (laughs) President's Week. And I had the honor of being selected a week and a half ago as president of the Tennessee Honors Council something or another. Oh, real important. (laughs) Uh, It it escapes me at the moment, but it was it was at Lincoln Memorial University, right on the in the Cumberland Gap, the the merge the the intersection of Kentucky, Tennessee, and Virginia, where many people from this part of the country migrated through, Uh, and as part of the inauguration as such as it was i got this hat and by the way if anyone ever goes there it's in harrogate tennessee right right up on the border uh, yeah uh, there's a wonderful lincoln museum a, a mm. very modern has actual artifacts from lincoln himself as well as a lot wow. of portrayals and uh statuary and paintings and and uh, even movies in which he has been featured oh very nice okay well uh Welcome, President Vile. Yeah, I'm a little <laughs> conflicted. I have a Lincoln hat and a and a Thomas Jefferson memorial. So it's presidents. But both were presidents. I'm not presidents. sure I'm going to wear this the whole time. Although, you know, it it may may make it look more like I belong on an oatmeal container than <laughs> <laughs> in a presidential. So Very I, I well. think with that aside. But, 
Anyway. Well, it's it's a nice addition to to the week. Um, I can't say I have any hats, but I do have some wine. Um, so the wine that I'm drinking is a beautiful rosé, um, and it actually is. <laughs> I love the the way that it says it. It's Yes Way Rosé. Um, love <laughs> this bottle. Um, it's apparently a product of France, 2021, um, modern and refreshing dry rosé in the south from the south of France. Um, so that is what I have. It is very. I will say I've already had some last night, uh, not this morning or this afternoon or whatever we are right now. Um, but I have already had some. It is so. Good. It's so refreshing. It's almost like drinking one of those hint waters where it has a hint of flavor. Um, but it's very good. What about the rest of you? What are you drinking? Back at it with the box, Franzia. Here we are. Franzia. And some water. Excellent. Excellent. Well, cheers, you and all. In 10 years, if it's French, shouldn't it say we, shouldn't it say we way instead of. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they were afraid people would think it was Chinese. We so. rosé. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's well. I'll write and let them know what their bottle should say. But yes, I agree. We, we. Um, all right. Cheers, everyone, to what I think is going to be a very exciting episode. Cheers. And Chelsea, I have to say while you're drinking that, um, one of my friends commented um, a couple of weeks ago, I see your glass again. And one of my friends said, what size glass is Chelsea drinking? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So so I love that you're going full force for happy hour here. Of course. It's needed. I, I call them the Olivia Pope wine glasses. It's from the show Scandal. She always like has these ginormous wine glasses, and I had to have one for myself. Nice. Well, I'm glad that you did. Um, So let's get into this. Um, I know we all have some strong ideas on this embryo case, Um, but I also know that Dr. Vile and Chelsea, you both have a little bit more of the facts. So what I'm going to do is, Dr. Vile, you have the case name and a little bit more of the party information, um, as well as Chelsea. So so pipe in whenever you need to. Dr. Vile, I'll have you start us off with the basics of this case. And I know we all have some opinions to throw in, as well as some extra, you know, not just our own, but legal opinions, of course, which is the legal show. Um, but I know it also clearly affects many individuals on a a very deep personal level. Dr. Vile, let us know what's happening. Well, the case, I I think it's going to be called LePage versus Center for Reproductive Medicine. There's there's another uh, litigant, uh, Berwick Assane, and and, and apparently a husband. And basically what happened is they they had gone through IVF, which involves... It's fairly painful process, as I understand it. You have to, they give you a couple weeks or months of hormone treatment uh, with the idea of producing eggs, and then they harvest the eggs, which I'm assuming can be somewhat painful. Um, and it's my under- And what typically happens is they will harvest more eggs than may be necessary because you know, many pregnancies actually end in, mi- in miscarriages, and right. I think it's even 
more likely to have a miscarriage in the IVF process. So it may take, you know, you may try three attempts at two eggs each before a single embryo comes to term or pair of embryos we come to term. And so in the meantime, these are frozen. Well, it's uh, not just the eggs. Um, some people can freeze just the eggs, but then there's the combination. Well, um, right. In, in this case, the, they you have had fertilization correct. take place outside a body. Correct. And then the embryo, I think it's actually, they let it expand to about 12, 24, maybe off on this, but but more than two, you know, two or three cells, enough to make sure that it looks like it's going to be, you know, implantable. And then those that are not immediately, if they're not immediately used, then they're frozen. So if you have an implantation that goes awry, does not succeed in a pregnancy, then they can. And the other, the other thing, which people may even have, I mean, well, you can say even have more sympathy for. I think you'd have sympathy for anybody trying yeah. to have children. Um, and this 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 sort of cuts across. I think the difficulty with this case it cuts across the traditional pro-life, pro-choice lines. Um, and frankly, one of, one of the things that concerns me about the case is that maybe it's easy to ridicule. Uh, there are actually some, what I think are some important considerations uh, in the case. But, but nonetheless, what has happened, and this part seems a little unclear to me, but someone, for reasons that I do not understand, mm -hmm. apparently lifted some of these embryos out of the can or whatever, which, which is where they're frozen. We're and, not scientists. Right. Like and a freezer. Like a freezer. Apparently <laughs> right. got freezer burn and yeah. dropped them. And so these embryos, which were, and what I was going to say earlier, let, let me back up a minute. These are used for, for couples who have, been experiencing infertility and want to have children. Sometimes they're used for like a cancer patient. They're they're undergoing radiation. They're not sure that they're later going to be able to uh, produce children naturally, <laughs> for, for lack of a better term. Um, they might be used for, I guess, an un... Well, at least for the eggs, maybe an unmarried woman who's you know, not sure she's ever going to be able to, to get married or. And uh, even, but, and Chelsea, I'll have you speak to this because I know you, you have a lot of, a lot more information about how, how the, the embryos are used, why people would choose to use them or to not use them. So tell us more about why they're in the freezers. Um, so that we can have a better better basis for the the crux of this issue. Yeah. So there's a lot, as Dr. Bile was saying, a lot of things. And I think he made an interesting distinction, which is important here, of the difference between an egg retrieval versus the fertilized embryo, um, which seems like a minor difference sort of in like common parlance, but it comes 
extremely important here. Um, so yeah, like I'm 28, I could go have my eggs frozen, um, cause I'm unmarried and don't have a partner. That's an option, but that's not what this is. So these eggs have already been fertilized. It's an embryo. And so that's where there is a distinction. But for example, the daily podcast did an interview with a woman who has a health condition, um, and the type of medica- like medication that. she has to take to keep herself healthy would be harmful if she wanted to carry a child. So that is what she did. Um, she had her and her husband, you know, had eggs fertilized, have an embryo. And so her solution was to put that into a surrogate, um, oh. but that has now been called off. She's an attorney in Alabama and that right now is on pause. And I had, I actually had a friend as well who did exactly that is she could not carry um, exactly. to term. She'd had about eight miscarriages. I mean, it was absolutely tragic. Um, so, but they, they realized the the embryos were solid, well, for lack mm-hmm. of a better word. Again, we're not scientists or doctors, but mm-hmm. they, they were viable. Um, yes. So they used a surrogate. Um, they had their yeah. embryos implanted yes. in the surrogate um, and brought it to term and have a beautiful baby. And yeah. we've had, I mean, how many of our friends and even family members have struggled with, with fertility? And having children, and this is from my understanding as well. And forgive us for for being having some lack of understanding. We're doing our best with the terms, um, and and not in an unsympathetic way. Um, I I don't think any of us have actually gone through IVF treatments, although many of our family members and friends have. And in, as I also understand it from Doctor Viles, you know, beginning is they do have to implant several at a time is the idea where if one embryo fails to to go to term um, to implant that they usually implant multiple ones um, or not implant to no that's that's exactly what it is is that they have the retrieval they sort of have the fertilization that's outside of anyone's body Um, they retrieve a lot of eggs a lot of them they attempt to fertilize and, and they don't all take. Then they have these embryos that they're, for lack of a better word, incubating for a little bit before they're implanted. They implant more than they think. That's Taking, I think, is a good word. Some of them take, some of them don't. Um, so throughout this process, and I think that's what the interesting thing, even if this process goes exactly how it's supposed to go at every step, it is statistically likely that you will be losing a significant amount of embryos throughout the process. Um, and then at the end, say you do have a successful pregnancy, what do you do with the other ones? That is like right. a question that a lot of couples have to deal with. Some will say you can use them for scientific testing. Some will want them destroyed. Some say keep them frozen just in case for, you know, the next 10 years. Um, but I think that's a an individual choice type of question that a lot of couples have the freedom to make that choice. Well, One of the, maybe yeah. not now, but. Right. One of the opinions, a concurring opinion, if I if I remember correctly, talks about how in some European countries they actually limit the number of embryos that you can take. It's either oh. like one or two at a time. And from a from a purely moral standpoint, as someone who has respect for those who believe that life begins at conception, um I can see I can see how that you know, I can see the wisdom of that. What it, the difficulty is, my understanding is, 
each time you do the IVCF procedure, you're paying maybe ten or twenty thousand dollars. Yes. Uh, and again, very often the first one or two don't take. Um, but that would be a possible, you know, midpoint that that you would you would either. I mean, the other option would be to say you could have up to X number of fertilized eggs, but those that you didn't use, you would be you would give the chance for adoption prior to the time that, you know, normally one would be able to, to, to keep them frozen. Right. And I uh, think right now, depending on the state, there are different rules of how long they can stay frozen without a choice being made. Um, right. Some say something like 10 years, if nothing's happened in 10 years, then it's up to the medical facility um, or that they're destroyed. Um, after that time, if nothing's been done. But I also, in addition to my other friend, I have, this is how closely it affects us. This is what, six degrees from Kevin Bacon or whatever it is, <laughs> is how, how close is it to all of us? And even if you don't know how many couples that you know or people that you know are struggling with, with having a child and using this procedure in one way or another. And I had friends um, of second degree friends who did not have their own children, they adopted embryos because they believed, um, based on their own religious background, that they were children. And it was better to give these children life than to have them destroyed. So that was, you know, you can't adopt all of them clearly, but that was their mission, um, their their idea in life that they would adopt these children, yeah. adopt the embryos, but adopt the children in their mind. What, again, what sort of cuts across your traditional pro-choice and pro-life positions is, well, th this isn't quite fair, but in an abortion, you are consciously terminating an embryo. Now, you may have, it may be because, it may be actually for the embryo's benefit, you know, you may believe that the child is going you know, going to have serious maladies. The fetus at uh, that point, right. right? I guess the fetus at, at, at that point. But in this case, you have people, if embryos are being destroyed, they, they're not really, they're not going into the process with the intention of destroying them. They're going into the process with the intention of conceiving and birthing. And uh, Right, unless they're yeah. left in the the freezers and, right. and then destroyed. But, but yes, correct. What I what I find fascinating, of course, you know, this is what happens when you teach constitutional law. Instead of getting to the real issue, you're interested in how they interpreted this case. And the most, what bothers me about this case is that the majority opinion claims that they are following what is known as black letter law. Mm. So the majority is saying, we believe the law is and always has been clear that a child, that, that there is a child once an egg is fertilized, even if it's outside the mother's womb. Yes. And who are they citing? Well, they're citing William Blackstone, you know, 18th century English commentator. And they sort of looks like they sort of cherry picked uh, a definition 
to say that we have the law, the black letter law, meaning, you know, the law, we're not, we're not interpreting the law at all. We're simply telling you what the law means, and the law has always included this. Well, at the time the law was written, it you was possibly there, it was, there was no scientific possibility of conceiving a child outside a mother's womb. Right. So it I think what bothers me is it sort of gives I mean, I think black letter law is often a very appropriate way of, of constant, you know, of interpretation. But it's We're our not, black letter law. Where's ours? Oh. I mean, the black letter law is our constitution. So they're saying it's, Alabama's constitution. Okay. Um, so Al- quoting a lot of, and, and I don't remember if this was the majority or one of the concurring opinions, but it was, it was one of them, um, <laughs> as big as that sounds, but they're quoting parts of the Alabama constitution saying the Alabama voters have intentionally voted to have the sanctity of life into their constitution and that that is black letter law and that that clearly decides this case, which I think is absurd. I mean, frankly, I don't, I don't think that that is because um, it has the phrase sanctity of life with no definition, right? In the Alabama con- constitution, it's just sort of this flowery language in that context. Um, and so I think now they're just like taking a definition and saying, oh yeah, well, that's what it's always meant without any real support for that. Yeah. And the more anomalous one to me is the word nursery. Mm. Oh my God. I, I have a, you know, when I think of a nursery, right. I think of a place with a lot of crying babies and toys right. around the floor. Uh, and Diaper I, changes, and that's, food, yeah, that, babysitters yeah, or uh, something. Bottles yeah. and that sort of thing. Right. And they're claiming essentially that this, container that has frozen embryos is a nursery. So being the scholar that I am, <laughs> I decided I would look up child care regulations in Alabama. Oh, no. Oh, perfect. Um, and what I found that's sort of interesting <laughs> is they give age group definitions. So in their black go, letter law. This is black letter law. Existing law. I mean, I pulled it right off the net. Uh, summary regu- child care regulations in Alabama, um, licensing. But the, the age group definitions will start at the higher. School age, five mm-hmm. years or older. Preschooler, two and a half to five. Mm-hmm. Toddler, child from walking independently to two and a half. Infant, child from birth to walk independently, usually 18 months. There is no category for preborn children. Right. Uh, and... You know, if you mm-hmm. want to talk about black letter law, and again, I'm I'm not a medical professional, and if some if somebody knows differently, we, right. we'd welcome their comments. I'm Absolutely. sure. Absolutely. But I, the thought of calling this a nursery just seems such a distortion of ordinary language that it makes me suspicious of the other language that's used. And again, I'm someone who generally considers himself pro-life. Right. Um, not an absolutist when it comes to, you know, rape and incest and, you know, some circumstances like that. But I believe in interpret, you know, if, if you, if you distort words, it catches up with you in later cases and it arguably undermines judicial credibility. Right. And in this particular case, then the decision was that these, these families were were liable for wrongful death of a child, of children, 
um, for the actual, loss of well, the embryos, or at least the case could proceed. What's the procedural posture? Right. My understanding is the case decides that the person who lifted, and I still don't understand why this happened, but who lifted these up, got freezer burn and dropped them, is liable not simply, seems to me what what the, a normal case would be negligence. Sure. The hospital seems to have been, clinic was negligent in allowing somebody in there who didn't belong. Right. But they're saying, no, this isn't negligence. It's wrongful this death. This is actual, uh, is it murder? Wrong, I don't think it's they wrongful, death. wrongful death. Like yeah, wrongful death. Cases. I'm sorry. It's against the medical center, um, right. which I think is interesting. And I think it's funny because I have been very, I'm very staunchly pro-choice. You've seen it in our other videos. But I do think in this case, um, no, I don't agree with the ruling at all. I think it creates so many problems and further issues. But I do think we have available in our legal sphere and our legal system to adequately compensate these families for this loss. Right. Um, because I think that's what it was. And I truly think to them it, it is the loss of losing a child. Um, and I understand that. And I think we already have ways within our system to differentiate that. I mean, we use that in a lot of contexts. In a lot of states where abortion is legal, you can also, if you are a drunk driver who kills a pregnant woman, can be charged with both of the murders. Like we understand definitions for certain purposes within the law already. This seems like we could have done this another way, but I think it was more of an attempt to make a broader stance. Well, and, and I guess, but, but let me, let me cut in here is that is the question. What is the other way? Because if, if this is just property, right, the idea right. has been that these embryos are property, not life. And if these parents truly believe that these embryos are life and that they have been deprived and their children have been killed, through mm -hmm. no fault of their own, but through negligence of someone else. If mm -hmm. it were a child of the age of two, a, a toddler, yeah. Yeah. then it would be a wrongful death case. That's exactly what it would be against the medical center. They so this are is exactly saying, what I'm saying, is that mm -hmm. I think we should, if the decision would have limited it to wrongful death for this purpose in contexts such as these, I think it would have been a great ruling, but it didn't. It's trying to apply this broadly, and I think that's where the problem is. I think if we say... When a hospital allows embryos to be destroyed because they didn't have proper safeguards, that they can be charged with wrongful death. I mean, I think you're not charged, excuse me, sued under a wrongful death for this purpose and this purpose only. I think that's fine, but they didn't limit it. I think that's the problem right. I have with the ruling is that it's not limited to anything. And at this point now, IVF centers have stopped. There's multiple centers in oh, Alabama that said, we're not doing anything now because we're liable for children, apparently. Right. And people are moving their embryos out of state to be yep. protected in different states in case that they're, they're taken by the states yep. um, instead of left for the, the parents' decision. Um, and, and I somewhat agree with you, Chelsea, but I, I am going to disagree a little bit with, yes, Okay, I think it's a problem that this <laughs> this case had this decision at all because based on if we go through a normal case, the normal things, I don't think it fits under the current normal language. I don't think it fits under a current wrongful death, which is why I think the court ended up saying, well, the only way we can make it a wrongful death case is to declare that these are children. 
That's right. the only way we can fit it under the language. In my mind, the better decision would have been at this time, they are not considered under our law, under the U.S. law, the federal law, or our state law as children. However, should the legislature determine, you know, the legislature right. can determine otherwise. This is where we go back to the branches of government, yeah. That the legislature could determine that these, they could make a ruling that these are children. And then, you know, ultimately lawsuits would say, well, okay, these are children, wrongful death could go forward. Or like you're saying, Chelsea, the legislature could come in yeah. and decide, okay, in these cases, we are now going to define the embryo as this. But it shouldn't be legislation from the bench. Right. I think, that, I think that's also a fair point. I, I don't actually disagree with that. I think that is an absolute fair criticism of how this all played out. Yeah. And even, I, I mean, I know courts are deciding, you know, what's life and what's not. And we've had this struggle for a very long time. Dr. File, tell us the law, the current law, whether it's legislative or judicial review, where does it stand with regard to life and abortion? Because you've got the the background of Roe, the case that overturned Roe, and where it stands for the states too. So what's well, that I mean, background? Dobbs has basically said it's back to the states. Um, at, now, I don't know that we actually have a definitive decision from the U.S. Supreme Court as to whether whether you can go all the way back to conception in other words, what Roe did is it divided pregnancy into three, three, three trimesters, and essentially you had free reign to abort in in the first semester. Second trimester, you had to have some consider you had to have health health regulations in place to protect the life of the mother. Third trimester, you could ban abortion except in cases of the life or health of the mother, which was interpreted fairly liberally. Uh, Dobbs has sort of upset that. I mean, it, it, it said it's upheld. I don't know. I cannot remember the specific number of weeks that the Mississippi uh, case was, whether it was 16, maybe, or 12, 16. You know, could a state say you you can't, you know, could they outlaw the, the uh, day after pill, which would be sort of an immediate uh, abortion? Uh, I'm not sure that 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 is settled. One one of the things that that I find very fascinating is, you know, I've written a number of books on on religion and politics, and one of the fascinating things about this case is that the chief justice, who writes a concurring opinion, um, you almost feel like you're reading from Isaiah, and sometimes you are, or you know, mm -hmm. one of the prophets, uh, right. or the law, Leviticus, right in the Bible. You know, he even cites the wrath of God about, you know, anyone who would destroy life, you know, thou shalt not murder, uh, you know, some commands that, that I hope are, are fairly familiar to people. And, you know, there's, he certainly has a right to quote whatever he wants. It, we, we have, you know, in the Trump case, you have somebody citing, a, so you, you have the prosecution citing a sociologist to the effect that when Trump says one thing, he really means another. Right. So it's not it's not unusual to cite authorities, but it's a little disquieting in a country where, you know, well, we don't separate 
faith in government, but we certainly separate church and state. Right. If you feel like a justice's opinion is based more on his interpretation of Hebrew scripture than it is on the black letter law that the majority claims to be following, you know, it, it opens up the possibility that you could have a Hindu quoting from Hindu scriptures or a Buddhist quoting from Buddhist scriptures and using them as authority. Now, one, I guess, could say, you know, America is more predominant, historically has had more Christian roots than it has Buddhist or Hindu, but still— It's still supposed you know, to be separated from the state, so why well, is it Christian? Let's get really fun. Let's have a—I mean, let's get really fun with it. Let's have a Satanist quote from the Satanic Bible, right? Well, like, that's I mean, right. that's the reality. Or a Muslim quote, uh, quoting from the Quran. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, that would be perfect, and, and it would, I mean, it would be perfectly legitimately for, legitimate for them to quote from that, yeah. but when the, when the quotations from the Bible tend to be more frequent than those from the Constitution, one might suspect that this is an indication that the law wasn't quite enough and needed to be backed up by something else, and it, you know, it 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 calls it calls into question the impartiality of the decision making that's taking place, and I th- I think you know this is one. In fact, if I were teaching con law this semester, uh, we'd probably have a two week discussion just of this case because yeah. it raises some very fundamental interpretive issues. So what what now? Um, this this case is is gone. Is it a district court, a circuit court? What's the appeal? Can it be stayed? Well, this was the this was the Alabama Supreme Court. Okay. So you could certainly appeal the case from that court to the U.S. Supreme Court. You know, most cases come up through the first through the district circuit to Supreme Court, but they can also come from the highest court in each state. To the Supreme Court. So well, does it go court, from there to the U.S. Courts of Appeals? I think I think if it comes from the state Supreme Court, that it can go directly to the Supreme Court. Now, is there is there another? Could they also go to the Courts of Appeals? I'm not sure. I yeah, should know I'm. That, I don't. This is so sad because it seems like basic law and procedure but that was like in con it it was like in first year law school and i haven't had to deal with that for so long i I know for the bar (laughs) from a state supreme court to the u.s supreme court but i don't know if it's obligatory i don't know okay if you can go a a different a different route to get there oh okay no you're Uh, right okay so if it's a federal case then it goes up to the u.s courts of appeals right Um, Right. but for a u.s district court decision it would go to the circuit then to the Supreme Court. But I believe this can go directly to the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, I swear, y'all, I did. I do have a full legal education. I have been practicing for quite some time. It just threw me today. Thanks. Go ahead. The, I think what's more likely, th- this th- case doesn't seem to be getting nearly as much traction. I mean, Dobbs, there's a lot of opposition to Dobbs, but it's regional. Well, not that that's an overstatement. But there are some states that have very clearly had referenda uh, and decided that they're going to permit abortion, and there are others that have not had referenda, and they have, you know, accepted very restrictive abortion laws. On this one, it doesn't appear, and I think because the purpose, 
you know, this is not a great analogy, but if the house next door to me is burning, if I'm in a row of houses and the house next door to me is burning, they might destroy my house in order to prevent it from going to the next house. Absolutely. They didn't do it for the purpose of destroying my house. That that wasn't their goal. Their goal was to stop the spread. And in in this case, again, you don't have parents who are are trying not to have children. You have parents who are wanting to have children. Mm-hmm. And so I think that the legislatures, the people that I've heard, you know, even Donald Trump, who's you know says he's the author of Dobbs, meaning. You know, he appointed the three justices that that, that changed the decision. He seems to be taking a position that, uh, you know, I that IVF was not intended to. It wasn't affected uh, intended to affect that. So I th- I think you're going to have a lot of cases uh, where states now you may have some you know and you would think, particularly if you had a you know, well, Catholics are not the only one, but Roman Catholics. Yeah traditionally believe that life begins at, you know, at, at conception. conception. Um, so if you had a very predominantly Catholic state, it's possible that, you know, that they would go the Alabama Supreme Court route. But my impression is that it's that it's going to be overturned by black letter law. That's yeah. that's my impression. I, I'm interested to see what comes next. You know, I think of all the sort of snarky comebacks. Does child support start when the embryos fertilize? Can I take out a life insurance policy on each of the embryos that I have um, and really just rack up there? But I how mean, true? I, that's what I'm saying. Like, what if we're saying this is true, that would be my first step. And Alabama is about 15 minutes away for, from where I am right now. And if I live there, I would go and take life insurance policies out on all of the eggs that I could possibly have, right? Because I think that's a racket. Mm. I mean, truly, if this is what we're saying. I do we don't say, think you'd find insurance companies willing to right. do that. <laughs> I, right, but you, if we say these are the same as yeah. children and we have 10 fertilized embryos in this <laughs> nursery, um, start paying child support on all 10 children then, right? Is this what we're saying? Right. What happens if you get a divorce? Right. right. You get a divorce and the woman keeps the eggs. All of a sudden no. she's, yeah. Or the, or the they have custody there's, there's a Tennessee case on that. There have been cases and I wish yeah. I don't know Tennessee very law very well, but there have been cases where couples have argued over the cusp where one, one partner wants the egg to, to come to term, you know, be implanted and the okay. other wants it uh, to be destroyed. Mm-hmm. So there are some precedents there that would probably kick in. But that's at least currently. I mean, this is an industry that has been regulated through civil contract law as well as medical regulations. This not is not human some, rights. this is not until now a human's right human rights issue. I mean, how many decades now have we have had IVF which has been touted as a medical miracle? Um, which honestly, it really is. Um, but to to now say that it, we're going to take it outside of a contract between a parent or parents, um, a, a woman and a man, or you know, however the the sperm and the the egg donors, mm-hmm. to take it out of their hands and now to declare. This is a legal issue for, that's 
like you said, as a human human rights legal issue versus a contractual issue. You know, the the center is supposed to carefully handle the the embryos. The center is supposed to, you know, under the contract, this is what they can or can't do for it. Under the contract, they have, you know, I'm going to have this many embryos held. I'm going to use this many. This is what I decide to do with it afterwards. Like I said, it's the, you know, sometimes there's the five-year or 10-year rules that people contract for of what will happen to the embryos if they're not used after that term. So this to me is, it is a legal issue and sense of basic breach of contract. Are they following contract law? What is the remedy in the contract, the actual contract between these parties, the medical doctors, the medical facilities, the scientists that are holding these nurseries, that are handling these nurseries? What's the contract between them and the facilities and the parents? That, to me, is what handles these cases, but we are at a fundamental crossroads if we legally define after all of this time, what's in these nurseries instead of embryos as children, then we have absolutely and extraordinarily changed the course of IVF and fertility treatments in this country. Um, and what would happen? What would happen typically if if you had a change in the law after a contract was made? Would it typically retroactively apply to the contract or not? Well, there's the technically not because it's what is it race judicata or ips post facto? Which one is ex post facto law? Right? No, first first uh, one is civil law. Ex yeah. post facto is after the fact. Okay, so it, Chelsea, I, I think it's the thing that, and and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is like it's if you contracted for something and then it became illegal, the contract is void. I think this mm -hmm. is that would be the closest thing to this is that it. This is no longer a contract for property, that this property is now, I mean, not property. So I think maybe it would just void out the contract would be my if, initial thought. If, it's for like the, the current contract. The current one contract. Of the, one of the problems with considering it as property is it's too close to something else in, in U.S. history. <laughs> right? African Americans. Slaves were considered property. Right. And so, I, I mean... Just to put it on the table, I don't, I don't know what to do with that after I've said that, but that's, it, it, it's, it's one of those. It's, it doesn't seem quite in either, fully in either category. You know, we, well, but mm -hmm. I, I like that thought. However, we can place it. I think it's best to chew on it and to mull over yeah. it. The other thought that I have that I like that that term is we're looking at property. And I'm not sure what to do with this thought either, except to, to pass it on and for all of us to think about it, is dogs and animals are property. This is the conversation I had yesterday was that I, and we were talking about in the context of like, if you went to a dog park and your dog was attacked mm -hmm. and I have had my dog for 11 years and he is my, as far as I'm child. concerned, he's my child. If I watch someone who had an aggressive breed that they shouldn't have had out and they did everything wrong... And that dog attacks my dog and kills my dog in front of me. I have a recourse for property damage. And Correct. really, that's it. Okay. Um, Don't even take though your dog to the White House. <laughs> <laughs> it might get bit okay. by Biden's dog. Yes. <laughs> exactly. But that, that, to me, this is a living, breathing creature, right? This is who needs food, who needs water, who mm -hmm. can be, in my perspective, neglected, right? Versus... Right. 
how do you neglect an embryo? And I know that's not a popular opinion, but that's mine. I think it's very clear to me, but we consider dogs property. Right. And I don't know what we well, do with that it either. It's called just kind chattel of slavery. Chattel yes. was property. an animal that one owned. Right. Uh, and again, it's, it's a complication. It's like the old, it's the old tort saying it's a trespass to chattels. It's like stealing people's animals, right? Like that's what it was. Exactly. Exactly. Is that you're absolutely right. Is it Somewhere civil tort law? Um, right. And, you know, yes, wrongful death is also civil tort law, but it's, it, is this property or is this life? That is the ultimate question that this comes down to. And there's a, there are very different decisions and outcomes as it to is. whether embryos are declared legally as life or as property. But, okay, even if they're life, in this situation, there doesn't seem to be any intent on the part of the people being sued it to destroy matter. the embryos. It doesn't. There may be negligence in allowing someone in there who didn't belong and that's um, exactly the issue is in civil cases for wrongful death, it's negligence. It's, it's what it is. It, that's exactly what it is, is you may not have intended for the, the, you know, this embryo to be lost, but your actions, your negligent actions by allowing this person in, by not having proper supervision, by whatever, that caused it's this embryo to be lost. Court. It's not. Right. Ultimate negligence. to do it. Gross negligence is usually some kind of willful or wanton conduct, but regular negligence isn't necessarily you go unintentionally. You know, we've got wrongful death for drunk driving accidents, right? You didn't go out and intend to hit this car, this person, but you intentionally drove drunk. So it's the right. unintentional consequences of some intentional action. This person intended to go into the laboratory and knew they weren't supposed to be there. They didn't intend to, to kill an embryo or lose an embryo, depending on your terminology, but that's what happened based on your negligent intentional actions. But I don't think they're actually filing the case against the person who dropped Correct. them, right? They're, they're the filing it against the, the, the clinic Correct. that was supposed to be preserving Right, because why would, you know, a clinic who's right. supposed to be preserving them, why would they let anybody in who's not right. an, a technician? Right. Why would they let somebody handle, you know, or not be watching out for some random person handling the the, the nursery, the, the embryo? Right. If you work at, like, Kids Care RS, you're not letting someone wander in and pick up the babies, right? Like, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Is there a Kids no, R Us? <laughs> oh, I, mean, I don't know. Oh, it was, oh that's, that's the toy company. Like, the it, the it, Toys R Us. Right. No, I love it. Yeah, I like it, too. You know, random. you're right. Random nursery yeah. doesn't let random people come in and, you know, and handle the, the children. Babies. Right. But I also think this is where my frustration gets in sort of in the, what could the possible implications of this, you know, if this stands in Alabama and they're saying these embryos are children, I think about really good progress that we've made sort of as a country in very, very recent years around like children and family law that, you know, they usually have court appointed um, advocates and things like that. And in some States, I'm, I'm not sure about Alabama. Oh, no. I truly have no idea that the moment um, a custody case is filed of the child immediately. 
they have an advocate appointed. And that's a guardian ad litem. Right. And those in some states that are a little bit more like on it in these recent years, it's the moment the case is filed, they are appointed. And so I'm like, are we appointing guardians to embryos? Mm. And that you're making Virginia, I mean, you're going to represent you know a bit about guardian ad litem. Yes. <laughs> I do. And I will tell you this is I, not to be insensitive to life in any form, but the clogs in the judicial wheels that this would create seem immense to me. Of how expensive m- foreign children. Yeah, I mean, it's already so expensive for courts and for families to have guardians ad litem. There are already so few child advocates, whatever you call them per state. There are already so few. It's hard to get them. It's hard to pay them. Um, A lot of courts and states pay them. How are we going to deal with, you know, and clog up the judicial system with how many more cases for custody? Uh, You know... I just the and guardian ad litem guardians ad litem being appointed for every single embryo and can social you combine them? Who have to who have to go social workers who are as soon as custody cases are filed, you know, are in the Department of Family and Children's Services are you know they can be sent out to do home visits. It's for an embryo. Like what are the and I think that maybe this is had some experience volunteering for a couple of years in this field and so it just those things come to me and like I think that it creates issues for a system that is already overworked and underpaid at the expense of who. And I think a lot of that time it's children that are already falling through the cracks currently. Exactly. Oh goodness. Okay. For timing, I'm going to move us over to the Trump New York fraud case. Um, I'm afraid we spent most of our time on the embryo case, but honestly, it's, it's such a huge issue and has so many implications that I appreciate you both talking through all of them, you know, and there's so many more, I'm sure we could, you know, have another three hours and still not have, have gotten through them all. Um, but let's, let's talk about the New York fraud case. Um, the last that we talked, it had not yet been decided. It has now been decided for the astonishing sum of approximately $350 million against Trump, plus prejudgment interest, plus the, now he did not, the, the judge took back his prior rulings saying, stripping them of their companies in New York. Um, But he has now, or preventing them from doing business in New York, but his ruling is now, and and I think this is fairly correct, that they cannot serve on any boards of any businesses um, in New York for three years. So that is the the decision, and already the pre-judgment interest is about $114 million? Yes. Yeah. So... We're, we're uh, right. Just pocket change. I'll just pull that, you know, I'll help him. I'll give him a loan. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, ultimately in order to appeal, normally there's the notice of appeal that goes through, which is simply a filing the, you know, the, the attorney files, I intend to appeal. Uh, you know, there are certain forms per state. You have to do the proper form, but there, this is a filing court filing. But you're technically supposed to put up an appeal bond in order to appeal. And the appeal bond varies by state, but in New York, as best as I understand it, and I'm not a New York attorney, 
but it appears to be the entirety of the judgment amount plus the prejudgment interest that is supposed to be put into the court in order to appeal, where the judges can be assured that if you still lose on appeal, you can pay what you owe. Now, Dr. Vile, I know you have a little bit of an issue with some of this. Yeah, and I know that as a lawyer, you know why it's wrong, but I'm going to give you your shot anyway. (laughs) It reminds me, since we used the term earlier, the interest part worries me to be If I've taken a loan for $354 million, then I fully expect to pay it. Mm, Pay interest. With interest. uh, With it, I could take a loan for that. (laughs) But if I don't know I have a loan and I'm hit with later interest, it seems to me the interest should start at the time that you're declared guilty of having the loan illegally rather than before. It, 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 the ex post facto, I know that applies to criminal law. Right. But it, it doesn't, Sorry that for the dogs, part doesn't yeah. seem to give due notice to the party. Yeah. It, it, so it is, it is one of those things that is battled a lot. It is, there are very strong opinions on both sides. Um, and for most people outside the court system, I, absolutely understand and appreciate your thoughts on that. Uh, this does not seem fair. Post-judgment interest, sure. If you don't pay it after it's due, right, then interest should accrue. Um, that's And that's what you're saying, Dr. Vile, essentially, is now that the judgment has been made, now that you know that you owe the money, it's been judged judged against you, then let's start the interest. And, and courts often will. There's the post-judgment. But all courts that I know of across the United States do both prejudgment and post-judgment interest. Um, this is usually now at certain certain types. It's usually breach of contract cases, where I have an interesting one that that I've been doing through collections recently, but through lawsuit initially, is there was you know a, a business deal where a party was, my plaintiff was supposed to be paid a certain amount, we'll call it 100, it wasn't, but say that it was 100,000. Um, a, a number of years went by and they weren't paid. But at the time, they were supposed to have been paid the 100. So for my plaintiff to finally get judgment, roughly, again, I'm mixing up numbers here so no one can know, let's say it's five years later. So they finally get a judgment five years later, they still haven't been paid, Well, it's not fair for the person who didn't pay five years ago to get away interest-free for five years when they knew for five years they owed the money and still didn't pay. But that's the difference. What mm -hmm. I'm saying is he did not know that he he was going to get a $354 million judgment. Now, I will grant Mm -hmm. that he has gotten, well, most businessmen... Mm -hmm would have gotten the benefit of having that money, given some of Trump's business dealings, I'm not sure that he would have. But nonetheless, it just seems it's, I think to the public mind, that part seems particularly, I mean, the 354 million, yeah, pocket change, but another 100 million, we're talking real money now. Well, no, Uh, and, and I'll grant you that because it does seem that the judgment itself seemed to factor in penalties, right? The judgment had 
a penalty portion of it for the monetary figures. So if the judgment has penalties, then why shouldn't that count as the prejudgment interest? Either prejudgment interest on a lower sum of what he would have been paying if he properly had valued the his businesses or what he unfairly got as to improperly valuing his businesses. So there's that that amount. And and in that sense, okay, he should have known by defrauding people, the banks in this case essentially and others, that he got a certain amount of favor of money that can be allocated for improperly valuing either higher or lower than it was. But if he then also got a penalty, a punitive judgment, so to speak, on top of that, then why shouldn't it replace the prejudgment interest? And in that, I do see your point. Um, legally, it just doesn't apply. Um, this is the black letter law that has has existed in states, you know, for for hundreds of years, at least decade, at least decades. Of okay, you owe prejudgment, but I agree in this case because it's not quite a contractual case. It's not a breach of contract to the the specifics where he didn't fulfill his bargain, his benefit of the bargain, his contract that he signed. This wasn't a signed contract. These were loans. Okay, so he signed to accept the loans, but this case has been so almost speculative in nature where they have to, the judge has had to come up with a figure because we don't know the figure. And that, You've had th- experts testify, but they but right. they haven't been been unified for sure. Right, but even Trump, what you're saying is Trump wouldn't have known. Well, did I get extra? How much extra money did I get because but, I undervalued? And Trump, of course, is saying, and I think some people buy this, and, and I don't completely that it's a victimless crime. <laughs> that, and again, to going to contract, the banks knew knew enough about Trump maybe that they shouldn't have completely taken his word for it. They took their chances. But I think the answer... Well, now, but then I don't... I mean, if you were a bank now and gave him some, I I think that, you know, you you get what you... you you You're on notice, but then... It's my favorite phrase. I think the problem with the victimless... (laughs) I'm sorry. I think the problem with the victimless crime argument is that if you're giving... 300 and some million dollars to Donald Trump, maybe that's however many homes that you're not going to have loans for. It's not just the big business and Trump, it's where that money could have gone otherwise. And so I don't think it, you know, Trump is not the first, this this law goes back 20, 30 years or more. He's not the first to be prosecuted under it. So it wasn't made up just for him. Right. And it's not completely victimless, although there is a sense in which big boys ought to be able to take care, you know, they shouldn't make loans before doing their own research and not just taking somebody's word for it. Right. Yeah. And I cut Chelsea off and I apologize. Got too no, excited. It, it was not anything important. I was just saying, if, you know, a bank lended to him now, it's kind of on them. And it's my favorite phrase, like play stupid games, win stupid prizes. But I don't know that that was true, you know, all these years ago. Right. At the time that this happened, did they really understand that there might be, that he might truly have fraudulent 
intent right. that there might they might be de- being defrauded versus taking a chance on a businessman who was also a president. Well, that I mean the most obvious is if you claim that a ten thousand dollar resident penthouse really has thirty thousand square feet, that's hard to see as anything but fraud. But how were they supposed to know? The bank couldn't go right. in and do their own right. dimensions. Right. No, a case like that. Uh, other cases, you know, just because a tax, I'm suspicious of the tax assessor's value, like of Mar-a-Lago. Tax right. assessors where I live don't don't ever assess it for the full value. Of course, it's always uh, undervalued. And so some of those figures are subject, I think, to a lot of dispute. But it's pretty interesting. All right, so let me let me bring us to our last piece here today um, to conclude us. Dr. Vile, I know you have a new book that's come out. Um, I do. You are a very uh, well-published author. Um, this makes how many books for you now? Can you count them? Know. About 50. Uh, uh, yeah, because... Well, a lot of them are edited. You said that so casually. Can we just... <laughs> okay. Excuse me. I... I, I I don't know how to count them because some of them are in five or six editions. Some have three or four volumes, et cetera, et cetera, but about 50. But this is the latest, and it's not exactly political science. Hold it a little we... closer to you so we can see yeah, it. Yeah, there we yeah, go. Yeah, there we go. It's the Christian Cross in American Public Life. And it's actually, I'd call it a trilogy, except I got three different publishers. But I have an early book. That's actually one of my favorites, the the Bible in American Law and Politics, which is an encyclopedia. And these were not edited. These were yours. You you wrote them. And then MTSU, actually, our First Amendment Center, published a book called Prayer in American Public Life. Uh, And I love the cover. Uh, Uncle Sam on his knees. Uh uh, And there's a prayer, actually, that goes with that. And then this is... You know, of all of all Christian symbols, uh, the cross is probably one of the most ubiquitous, and it's you know it, it, its uses are sometimes troubling. You know, people in the Crusades put the cross on their, you know, on, on their garments uh, to go, you know, kill heathen. Right. Uh, people at the January six carried signs that said, you know, Jesus is my savior, Trump is my president. Uh, and often had crosses right next to gallows. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I may, the part that I like best about the book, and I think I don't think you have to be a Christian to appreciate this. I've dedicated the book to the individuals who have realized with Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. that the cross is not just something one might wear, mm. but something that one bears and upon which one might even be called to die. And if you think of Navalny over this last week, uh, there's an example of someone who apparently was a Christian, uh, but, you know, Christian or not, he, he realized, you know, he wasn't there for the glory that he might be the next president of Russia. Right. He was there because he believed in a cause. He believed in democracy. He believed mm-hmm. there was something better for Russia. And he, like Bonhoeffer and King and others, were willing to put their life on the line for it. Beautiful. Okay, well, we are going to end there. Dr. Vile, thank you for being with us. Chelsea, good to see you again as well. 
Um, we will. Okay. So this next week we may or may not, <laughs> we may or may not have another edition this week, um, or this next week. So bear with us, but, um, for medical reasons, I am going to be out at least another week or two. So we are going to take a brief pause. Um, we, again, we may or may not have at least one more episode. So stay tuned. Our, our intent is to have one more. Um, but either, then, or at least after that, we will be on pause for at least a couple of weeks, but please join us again because we can't get enough of the hottest weekly topics in the legal news. So we hope that you join us again um, soon. Don't forget to like and subscribe so that you can catch our next episodes and so that others can see them too. And don't forget that we are funded by the Law Unscripted, which also provides um, law school and bar examination um, prep review. So check out out thelawunscripted.com for those classes, um, to see those, to buy those, including some outlines, as well as to watch our podcast. So I'm Virginia Tarani. Thank you for joining us with The Legal Weekly Wine.